How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course. And I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? And a very, very happy new year to you. I hope you have made all your plans. John is looking, he's been on this this New Year's diet now for two days. He is live, he is trim, he has a six pack of Carlsberg. (laughs) How are you at? Happy New Year to you. I'm good, yeah, yeah. I tell you what, I genuinely am buzzing for 2023. Really? Yeah, I am. I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into 23. And that is that is yeah. uncharacteristically upbeat of you, Mr. Davis. I am usually the I'm upbeat. still hungover, by the I'm, way. I, I'm usually the upbeat person here. Well, do you want me to bring you down? <laughs> Go on, bring me down. No, we're going to talk about the single biggest economic issue for most people, okay, for most people, is not something remote like the Federal Reserve or even the outcome of the war in Iraq, or even the price of various, various commodities that gone through those. For most people, it still is accommodation. Housing, 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 housing. The perennial issue. If we learned anything in 2022, right, what we're talking about is the housing issue just remains vexatiously difficult to fix. And every political party is promising it. And yeah. every state is suggesting they're doing the best thing they can for it. And yet, as we know, not necessarily for outlets like us, but for the coming generation, our kids' generation, well, this I was is going the biggest say, issue for them. I mean, the, one of the lovely things about Christmas, and we had a great Christmas, but one of the lovely things was having the likes of Maggie back. My eldest, and I know Lucy was back here yeah. and Cal and the whole lot, and all the kids were back. And they kind of want to stay here because this is where a lot of the friends are and yeah. it's where they grew up and all the rest and blah, blah, blah. But like Maggie, for instance, is heading back. Why is she heading back? To the UK. To the UK because the work is there. And renting here is just way, way too expensive. They don't want to live at home anymore, and that's fine. Yeah, yeah. But renting... I wouldn't live with you either. <laughs> Not many people want to, actually. 
I don't have a good record. Exactly. John is the flatmate from hell. (laughs) Sure, Tommy left me. Anyway, I still haven't got over that, Tommy. He's one of the nicest blokes in the world. (laughs) Exactly. He's the most easy person to get on with. He couldn't. He couldn't do it. Yeah. But by the way, by the way, just so you know, I just tolerate him. (laughs) But you can't be exposed. Obvious, you can't be exposed to too much of this guy. But let's talk housing. So. Mangi's going back to the UK because of housing. Yeah. And yet the UK would say that they also have a massive problem. Yes, so and they do. It's, it's not cheap over there by any stretch of the imagination. It's not cheap, but, but you know what you can get in the UK, and I was talking to Lucy, she said, look, you know, she's in Hackney with, it seems like, half of Dublin. Yes. Half of Ireland yeah, is in Hackney, yeah, yeah. right? Um, but she says, at least you can find a place, mm. right? It's it's a here, it's a combination of money and also availability. Yeah. There's so little. So Lucy said, look, at least you can find a place. You can do house shares. Five of you can live in where she's living now. I think there's five or six of them living mm. in a house in Hackney, right? So they can do that. That option doesn't seem to be here for kids. And unless we fix housing globally, globally, yeah. the pendulum of politics will swing massively in the direction of a party or in any party that says we're going to fix this, right? Yeah. And what that means is actually, rather than we talk what that means, why don't we get somebody on the line? Have we, have we ever opened this podcast from New Zealand? Mm, don't think so. Well, I think I think on the basis on the did. basis that we're going to meet them in the quarterfinals of the World Cup, the Rugby <laughs> World Cup, and knock forty shades out of them. Yeah, we might as well go to the Kiwis. Forty shades of black out of them. For, exactly, forty <laughs> shades of black out of them. Stephen Hoskins. Housing expert, guy who knows his onions. He's on the line from New Zealand. You'll know New Zealand also has a massive problem, but we're going to put this in a global context. Housing in global context. Let's go to Christchurch. I am now going to go, because it is the first week of the new year, we're going to get very exotic. We're going to get multi, multi time zones away. We're going to go down to a country that we actually smashed in rugby over the last six months. We're going to go down to New Zealand. They are going to be chastened. They're going to be humble. They're going to be that lovely all blacks characteristic we always think of modest in defeat, magnanimous in victory. We're going to talk to Stephen (laughs) Hoskins, who is a housing expert from New Zealand. Stephen, how are you? Lovely to see you and welcome to the show. Uh, G'day, David. Very glad to be on the show. And I'm glad to hear that the all blacks have lulled you into a false sense of security uh, for the upcoming (laughs) World Cup. <laughs> well, maybe maybe it was all tactics on the part of Foster. It was like bring those Irish down, let them win. I'm not sure though. You guys looked pretty battered and bruised by the end of the second, the third test in particular. Yeah, that's right. But we're having some time to recover now and uh, plan for next year. And I'm sure everything will come together by then. Yeah. Now, listen, Stephen, I want to talk to you first about New Zealand. We're, we're going to talk. So just so you know, this week's podcast is all about housing. We're going into a new year. We have been afflicted by a housing crisis in this country, but we are not unique. Much as it is bizarre for Irish people to say, we're not unique. We're not the center (laughs) of the world. Lots of the world is experiencing a housing crisis. In particular, Stephen, your own neck of the woods. What is happening in New Zealand? Then let's set it up and then we'll just chat from there. Yeah, that sounds good. So look, New Zealand has, um, since the 1990s, just had continued explosions in housing unaffordability. The usual measure that people rely on is the median multiple, which is how many times the median income does it cost you to buy a house? And that's rocketed from, uh, I think, around four to five in the early 90s up until around 11 these days. And that is just wildly outside of the affordable range. Yeah, 11 times. 
Um, just can I stop you there, Stephen? So how are people on the median income? So let's remember, the median isn't the average. The median is the middle, middle. So if you're in the median income, 50% of the population are richer than you and 50% are poorer than you. How does that guy or girl or that family afford 11 times their income? Who's, are, are the banks lending them 11 times? Uh, no, not so much. Not unless they have um, family members that already own property that they can um, secure against for the mortgage. And so um, what's happening, uh, and this is the case in many parts of the world, is that we get this sort of entrenched system where people whose families own property are able to help their you know, younger generations into home ownership. And those who are not over that uh, threshold just kind of continue to pay rents later and later in life and really struggle to get onto that uh, home ownership. Well, ladder, or we could say uh, a golden escalator these days. Well, it is more like a golden escalator. And of course, you know, we could we could explore this, and John and I might explore it later on, about, you know, certainly it's funny, when I was a kid, or I was not a kid, when I was in my 20s, the notion of inheritance, because our parents had no money, so inheritance was like, you never thought about it. It was like, you just didn't have it, okay? However, and I think that goes for a vast majority of Irish people that, you know, of, of my generation, that there was no notion of your parents playing a huge role in your financial future. Whereas now in Ireland, and it's the same in New Zealand, the same in the United States, the same in Britain, the same almost all over the world, that inheritance factor is coming in. So it basically means that the rich kids are at an even bigger advantage than everybody yeah. else. So we're going to come back to that. But Stephen, so tell me, so you're a Kiwi, but you've been working, you were working in Amsterdam for a long time on housing. Explain to me how New Zealand very briefly got into this situation. And then we will take that and we'll go back to Ireland, but we'll talk about the UK and America. And are there solutions that can be actually that can be actually implemented to something that in effect should be solvable? So you go to Amsterdam to study town planning, urban economics, urban housing policy, etc. Yeah, so I think that this affordability crisis, let's talk about sort of housing rents. So we won't focus on prices that much because yeah, rents, those yeah. can be shifted around by interest rates quite a lot. Let's just think about the, the rent that everybody is paying on a monthly basis for housing. I think that there are pretty, you know, two pretty clear reasons for why these are exploding so much. One of them is the story that we hear all the time around um, planning constraints, which are just making it very, very difficult to build in the places where people would like to have houses. And then the other prong of this is, of course, that just the returns to living in a thriving urban centre are, you know, exploding, you know, every year. You know, that's where you have access to the best jobs. You can upskill the fastest. You have all these consumption opportunities. You can meet the most people if you're dating. You know, people are really flocking into the cities. And those are the places where we also have very strict controls over what you can build and where. So, you know, builders can't respond by supplying those kind of houses. In, in those places. So what you're saying is, let, let's, let's break it down. So let's, bring, let's let's talk about the second part first, that those people who want to live in cities, in the past, there was a certain percentage of people who used to migrate to the city, but that percentage was probably quite constant for quite some time. And the wages in the city and the opportunities in the city weren't so much greater than the wages and the opportunities, let's say, in other cities or smaller cities. Now you're saying that's completely changed. Certainly, um, since the Industrial Revolution, the wages have been higher in the cities and, and, and urbanisation has you know happened constantly since then and, and barely ever receded. But yes, as we sort of 
into this, you know, post-industrial, high-skilled services type of industry. The returns to, we call it agglomeration in economics, but this is basically just saying, we, you know, we how much... The economy is called the Tinder effect, okay? The opportunities <laughs> of Tinder in a city are much higher than the opportunities in the middle of nowhere. Actually, I think it's probably a very good indicator, actually. Yeah, I think so, for sure. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's a big part of what people do in cities is they want, you know, large dating markets so they can find a, you know, an even better match. Once they've found that match, they want to be able to both find, you know, jobs that are going to pay both of them really well. Yeah. And you need, you know, really and then they go large and labor markets to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, yeah. and then they, and then they say, sorry, Jordan, I've got something to tell you. <laughs> that's an entirely different thing. But look, there was too so, many so opportunities in this city. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you know, I'm curious. I'm curious. So, Let's let, let, let's talk about so so the the attraction of the city and proper cities huge right and then we've got this extraordinary inability of builders to respond because of planning regulations so how do we figure the whole thing out yeah so I mean I think that planning regulations are a huge part of the story you know rents in cities are always going to be very high compared to, you know, the edge of the city, the countryside, um, for all of the reasons that we just described. Um, but the way that a household would typically respond to that is by um, substituting, you know, when the price of milk goes up, you substitute by, you know, shifting away towards more bread or, you know, whatever else. And in the context of the city, how this works is that you respond to rising rents by building smaller houses, more houses on a given piece of land with, you know, medium density, high density apartments, um, these types of things. And so we have basically just sort of put these planning regulations in place because of sort of fears around what dense cities look like in the 1800s. You know, we've put all these very strict planning regulations in place and, and prevented people from, you know, building smaller units tall apartment buildings, you know, nice medium density, four-story walk-up type things so that people can substitute towards, you know, smaller houses, but, you know, in those even better locations where they really want to be. So what's the solution? Is the solution, mm. I mean, you and I are, I can see you're a disciple of Henry George, Georgism, right? But explain to me, because the solution does appear to me in the George world. Explain to me what, who Henry George was, what are his solutions and why they are eminently doable and executable in a normal democratic system where people have a responsibility but a right to object, they feel that they want to protect their environment, all that sort of carry on. Explain to me who he was, what his basic idea was and how it can be implemented. Okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a big question. So let me talk you through exactly. So through who Henry George was and the problem that he observed. And then I think what we should do is really talk about the, the nexus between George's worldview and this kind of YIMBY, you know, upzone to allow more housing kind of worldview, because I think they have some great synthesis to get it. So Henry George was, um, well, he was a 19th century American journalist, born in Philadelphia. He spent time in California during the gold rush. He worked on ships in Australia and India. And he observed, and we're all quite familiar with this, you know, 100 years later, he observed that poverty was greatest in the most prosperous places. So he saw all of these burgeoning cities where huge amounts of wealth were being produced and saw that even in those places, that's where homelessness and poverty and beggars on the side of the street were the highest. And, the, you know, this question just, you know, perplexed him because it doesn't make any sense. 
And certainly it's something that we see, you know, these days. It's it's in the coastal cities in America where homelessness is the highest. And it's, it's, an every, it's in every major city. It's in every major yeah. city. Exactly. And so his core argument was that land, well, he made this, but he wrote this book called Progress and Poverty. And in it, his core argument was that land rents are the reason why we observe that problem of, of poverty rising with progress. He argued that as society develops, land rents rise accordingly, you know, as incomes go up, rents rise. And certainly if you look at places where, you know, incomes are the highest, those are also the places with the most expensive housing, as we've been talking about. Um, and so he argued that, that land rents rise to gobble up all of the advantages of a given society, essentially allowing landowners to extract all of the gains from, from economic progress and sort of driving inequality by funneling land rents sort of out of the pockets of workers and capital and into the hands of the landowners. And so the real core of the Georgist worldview you know, we're very familiar over the last century of thinking about the battle between labor and capital. And we have, you know, left wing parties who represent labor and right wing sure, parties and who Marx represent and, capital. and Engels. Exactly. Interesting for a journalist, uh, Marx is just a much better branding department going on. Yeah, that's right. Just so the listeners know, Progress and Poverty was the best selling book in the United States outside of the Bible in the 1880s and 1890s. It yeah. was a book read by Tolstoy, by Roger Casement by all sorts of extraordinary world leaders and thinkers at the time. George Bernard Shaw saw it as his Bible in the Fabian Society. So we're talking about a serious piece of work. And then subsequently, I've always been intrigued, is how come Karl Marx, who wrote abominably badly, right? <laughs> I mean, if you try to read Capital, it's just awful stuff. You've got to read it because you've got to read it because it's, you know, because it's the Bible of a certain sort of uh, creed. Turgid stuff, awful stuff. Mm -hmm, but he was a very mm -hmm. good short-term polemicist, was our Marx. But as a long-term, right. But George writes this book. He has a big idea, which is the conflict in urban areas in particular is between the owner of land, not capital, and the worker. That's right. And he actually said that the conflict is between labor and capital on the one hand and land on the other, because it's it's land rents get extracted from, you know, the returns that could be earned by both the laborer um, and the capital investor. And so the remedy that he proposed to all of this was to shift the tax base off of productive factors and onto the land. So, you know, in economics and in popular discourse, we're quite, you know, familiar with talking about the fact that the income tax is punishing people from getting out of bed and going to work and earning a living and producing value that we can all enjoy. Taxes on houses discourage people from building more houses. Taxes on carbon discourage the production of carbon. That one's actually a good thing. But George said, you know, we should cut taxes on, on production, on income, on investment, on capital, on houses, cut those taxes and raise a tax on land value. Um, so this is, you know, every year that a piece of land is generating rents, that should be taxed, captured back into public hands to recognize that the returns to this natural resource are, you know, rightfully the, the, the property of all of humanity all at once. That's how we should fund society, fund the safety net, and redistribute those land rents to the rest of society. And he also made the point, which is very interesting. So for example, I live in a part of Dublin, that has a thing called the DART, which is probably the best piece of public transport infrastructure mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the country. There's no doubt that our house value has gone up as a result of being 500 yards from this particularly mm -hmm. big 
station. I didn't pay anything more than anybody else for the running of the dart. So people who live 100 miles from me contributed to an asset which happens to be beside me. And then when you see if houses on this street or this area come up in real estate brochures, they say, oh, it's right beside the dart, right? So I'm getting the benefit for something that's been paid for by somebody else, and I'm getting all the benefit because mm -hmm. the people who don't live on the dart line are getting zero benefit, but they still pay the same taxes. So that's yeah. what he was getting at as well, that the, that the rents capture public investment that only goes to the private landlord. Yep. Or the private that's landowner. Exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if we were if we were collecting, um, you know, a, a significant land value tax, it would mean that exactly the people that are benefited by that um, DART are the ones who pay for it. And there's actually some really nice theorizing and, you know, the arcane publications of economists that funding your municipal services that way will actually produce the perfectly optimal bundle of goods because, you know, the voter base will demand exactly those infrastructure investments that are going to benefit them enough to make the increase in taxes, you know, justifiable for, for their households. And certainly, you know, there are, there are some kind of proto-Georgist systems in Singapore. Hong Kong is a great example because when they build their MTR stations, their transit stations, the government buys up all the land where they're planning to put the station, then builds the station and then leases the land out to commercial developers to benefit from that additional location value that they've created. And as a result of kind of funding their MTR system through land rents, it's one of the only profitable transit networks in the world. It's completely wow. profitable. It's not subsidized at all. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So yeah. why do you think, just as this is more of an aside before we get onto it, that Georgism is a marginal idea and Marxism was the revolutionary creed of the 20th mm -hmm. century. Mm -hmm. I think I think part of it is circumstance. So Marxism managed to really find its place in the hearts of, of oppressed workers in the early 1900s and was just so associated with so many of those revolutions and, you know, so many of those novel kind of political systems that it just happened to be embedded right into the hearts of the labor movement right from the start. So that's part of it. And then I think the other half is post-World War II, land rents kind of had a little period of not being so important in society. So, you know, governments recognizing that so many of their men had gone off and, and, and served in the war, wanted to ensure that there was housing available for all. And they did a really good job for 30 to 40 years or so of providing quite good public housing, building, you know, road infrastructure for the emerging motor vehicle class so that we had kind of suburban development with pretty good connectivity into the city. And this kind of opening of a new frontier at the edge of the city with very low transportation costs just meant that location and land value was not that important for some period of time. And if you want to get really conspiratorial about it, there's also this kind of you know neoclassical emergence. Oh, yes, we um, do. <laughs> in the in the nineteen in the in, in the mid to late nineteen hundreds, the emerging neoclassical perspective within economics was really focused on capital and labor as the two factors of production, and all of the models that were built around economics at that time and, and growth models were all about labor and, and capital. And land just didn't find its way into the economic yeah, textbooks. No, it didn't find um, its place. No, that's very time. very true. As somebody somebody who's who, who's educated in that system and ended up teaching that system. I was always intrigued yep. by this. But now, in the last 20 years, 
the provision of housing and the cost of land and the spillover and social and political and elemental. It's about dignity. Once people's lives have shown that land is the key issue. We can build, you think a country like Ireland and New Zealand, we can generate an economy that works. We can generate jobs. We can generate wealth. We can generate income. We can sell more stuff that when we import, we can have surpluses, all that stuff. But land is the big deal. This is the number one issue. Mm-hmm. So how do we yep. solve it? Because yeah, you take right. New Zealand, you take Ireland. We are unbelievably sparsely populated places. Mm-hmm. Ireland and New Zealand probably have, but well, New Zealand's particularly sparsely populated. But yep. we're not like Holland. We're not like New York or Hong Kong, where we have lots of people trying to live in one small area. We have these reasonably flexible cities. All that. How do we solve this? Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is that, you know, even with our relative relatively low population density, New Zealand still has this housing problem, this housing cost problem. And it's it's because, you know, the really high value locations are in the cities and, and, and those are inherently scarce. So how do we solve it? Well, let's start by talking about the zoning, because I think that's a big part of it, the, the land use planning. And then we can talk about how George's solution is also necessary. So, you know, my argument is that um, this YIMBY movement of, you know, upzoning to allow more housing in the places where So YIMBYism where is yes it, in my backyard. That's right. So, just, so, so it's the opposite of NIMBYism. Yeah. yeah. So that, in my view, is absolutely necessary because... As we've talked about, you know, there are these locations where people are, you know, really eager to live. And the only way to deal with, you know, that, that you know, huge amount of demand for these high value locations is to allow more housing to be built in those places. So we have to find ways to ease those land use planning regulations to allow for higher density housing so that people can move into those places. We can get all those production and consumption, you know, network effects, the Tinder effect that we were talking about. And we get a lot of economic growth out of out of that, honestly, out of, you know, supercharging our cities that way. And, you know, to the extent that doing so leads to, you know, increases in the supply of housing, it'll also have a depressive effect on the cost of, of rents in those locations. And I think this is how we got connected, is that I was summarizing some of the recent literature in that space that has found that, you know, when more market rate units get built in a given location, you see nearby rents and prices falling. There's another paper that finds that displacement rates near to new market rate units also fall. So people getting sort of evicted or priced and and forced to move out of their house to a lower priced neighborhood, that declines near market rate housing as well. I mean, this is is the obvious thing that you fix a problem of too few houses houses with more houses. I mean, it's yeah. not, this is not rocket science. And yet, That's right. yet, Stephen, yet mm-hmm. there is in this country an enormous amount of objecting to new developments framed not in the, well, I actually would quite like a view and I don't want these people living beside me. And frankly, they won't be the, the right type of people living beside me. And this is not the right type of development, but framed this sort of bizarre thing that if you build, for example, upper income housing, right? Just say it. It mm-hmm. automatically impairs and penalizes people on lower incomes. But the evidence is the opposite, that if it doesn't matter what you build, as long as you're building, it's shunting on through all the So, so the houses that used to be built, if, let's say, for example, if houses were not built at all. So the houses that used to be lived in by the middle class are now lived in by the upper class. The houses that used to be lived in by the working class are now lived in by the middle class. The houses that used to be lived in, or the people who used to live in working class houses have nowhere to live. 
Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So, yeah. so, so, what do you think drives this nimbyism, uh, the one that's framed in the idea that we need to build only specific types of houses all the time, only for people on social houses, for example? What, what is is that ideologically driven? Is that is that our friend Marx bleeding into George? Yeah, I think um, I think that a big part of it just comes from people getting the causation the wrong way round. I think that what happens is that they see that rents are rising the fastest in the places where new apartment buildings are being built, and they think that it's the new apartment buildings that are increasing the rents rather than the rents rising and people building those new buildings in response. I think a big part of it is just people getting that that causality the wrong way around. So that's that's one of it. I think another. Another prong of this is that there is part of what happens when you build a new anything is the amenity effect. You know, when we talked about the new DART transit stations, yeah. that creates amenity value in that location and it raises rents nearby. And there is an argument that a new market rate building with, you know, coffee shops and, you know, sure, you know yeah. and craft building. beer bars, exactly. You know, those yeah. do create the gentrification, the, the, you know, improvements from the perspective of people that with, you know, well-heeled pocketbooks. Those can raise rents through the amenity effect. So I think there's some, some concern about that. And then I think a solid chunk of the rhetoric that we get here, I think is also just opportunistic homeowners learning to use the language of the left to dress up their selfish rent-seeking. And this is the conspiratorial side again. <laughs> oh, I, I, I quite like this. Before you go, before we go, if George were in power now, what would he do? straight away, and how do you think that would change everything? Sure. So George was a profound believer in the the benefit of liberty for a human flourishing. So I, I, there's no doubt in my mind that he would agree with us that we need to be easing these regulations on what can be built where to allow people to you know, build the types of houses that people want in the locations that they want. But I think he would also recognize, and this is, you know, I wrote an article about the nexus between George and, and, and Yimby, and I would invite your listeners to read that. I think he would also recognize that just reducing those land use regulations is not enough on its own, because you will still have, you know, speculation on those locations, you'll still have people buying the, you know, the land up, not developing because they know they can just hold on to the land and wait for the value to rise anyway. Uh-huh. And, in, you know, indeed, to the extent that all of these, you know, benefits of, of dense housing arise, they will just fall into land value, they will they'll fall into land rents, and they will, you know, flow into the pockets of the landowners. So he would also, support, as he did 150 years ago, a single tax or a tax on land value. So this is, I'm sure that their political pragmatism, you know, he would recognize that we need to kind of ease our way into that. So you might start with kind of three quarters of a percent of an annual tax on the value of of, of land at a property, and he would sort of ratchet it up over time. And this would be recognizing that, you know, whatever system of infrastructure we have, whatever system of land use planning we have, to the extent that that's benefiting landowners in different locations, they should be compensating society for that collectively generated wealth and paying their land taxes. Stephen Hoskins, fantastic stuff. It's lovely to start the year down in what people would say is the other end of the world. I'm sure you regard us as being at the other end of the world. We will see you in late September for a rugby match, hopefully a quarter final, but knowing Ireland, chances of us blowing it before that are pretty high. And we'll watch the space on Georgism. So Stephen, wonderful to talk to you and thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you, David. I hear you're going to be at the World Cup, so I hope you find a nice bar after the loss to the <laughs> Do you know, Mac, just listen to Stephen there, you know, we talk about housing a lot. You forget, I certainly forget that housing is certainly not restricted to Ireland. Oh, no, housing no, this is, is, this, is a world, this is a worldwide phenomenon of where people want to live, where people don't want to work. The Tinder index, we came up with it. Yes. Exactly, there you go. That's one for the new year now. John will be on Tinder, okay? Saying, I swear, I'm just looking at houses. I'm just doing some economic research. Before before we get into trouble, Mac, we'll come back to this in a few seconds after this. I love it. You on Tinder, man. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So when we're not on Tinder, John, let's talk. No, what we're talking about. Is swipe a global left. A, swipe left, <laughs> swipe left, mm, swipe, swipe left. left. <laughs> what happens when you swipe right? I don't know. I'm afraid to. <laughs> Do you go under a pseudonym? <laughs> let's get back. Let's get back. The, the room is too giggly. The room is too giggly, and it's the first thing. Okay, so, so, so let's get back. The work of Henry George. Yes. Now, what is fascinating is that book, Poverty and Progress was the biggest selling book, as I said, in the 1880s and 1890s, Mm. right? You know, and as I said, Tolstoy, George Bernard Shaw, all these greats all thought that this was the new Bible of economics. Mm. And fascinatingly, another book that came out at the same time we were talking about, Das Kapital, right? Yeah. An appalling piece of drivel, right? What interests me is (laughs) why did Henry George disappear from having been the most important book in economics at the time, and Karl Marx ascend to the revolutionary throne that he did. Right. And I think it's interesting. I think it's because George 
actually attacked landowners, right? Right. And landowners are unbelievably powerful, whereas Marx, right, attacked general capitalists, right? right? Okay, yeah. Owners of factories, in effect, right? And through Marx, Marxism was able to frame an enemy that wasn't you. Mm. But because everyone wants to own a house and everyone has an aspiration to own a house, what George was saying is that the enemy is you in a little bit. Because when you become a homeowner, what you do is you drag up the drawbridge. And this is exactly what's happening now. So the person who was a renter flips to become a homeowner and then suddenly says... I'm all right, Jack. Yeah, it's it's that whole thing of once you own a house, you want the price to go up. Precisely, and, and when you don't own a house, yeah, you want yeah. the price to go down. Yeah. So I think what happened, George, was that George's enemy, in effect, was everyone. And yeah. that's why it's so tricky. Whereas Marx could say, well, I'm not the owner that's of really interesting. capitalism. I'm but, not the owner of the factory. So therefore, I must have something to gain from Marxism. But the whole idea of Henry George and that this land tax and land valuation is so of the moment now. Absolutely. So so how do we reframe it? We need to reframe it so that it, it becomes part of policy. Well, it has to become part of policy. Otherwise, otherwise, unless you tax land in order to bring land into use, this is the interesting thing. Mm. So George's argument is you need to make the wasteful use of land expensive, right? This is mm. a fascinating... So by introducing a tax on the site... If you let the site go fallow, if you don't develop it, if you don't develop densely, right, yeah. it will actually cost you money. So his whole idea is to encourage the development of density in cities, yeah. right? And it's the density that drives the falls in prices. And what you're seeing in all the data is that even when you build posh houses, right, which are notionally out of the reach of most people, mm. what actually happens is there's a shunting on effect and it liberates housing even at the lowest end, yeah, right? Yeah. So the really rich people buy those posh houses, those really rich people that are not competing with the middle class for middle class houses, the middle class are then not competing with the working class. Yeah. So it actually, that's how the whole thing works. I, I think any government and any political party that embraces this and explains it to people, I think will win. But the problem with this is you, you have to get elected, right? Mm. So how do you get elected when one of your major ideas is going to penalise the voters today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though we know that after you get elected, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And so what will happen is if somebody comes in with this site value tax, could you imagine doing prime time or, you know, BBC News night or something, Mm. and the candidate who's not introducing the land tax just was, oh, you want to tax my house? Yeah. Conversation over. Yeah. Right. But, but so, so, so it has to be done almost on a global... I, I think it's a bit like the environment, John. Yes. It has to be done on a global scale that all politicians say, this is a significant problem and we are cannibalising our young people by not doing this. So you have to appeal to parents and older people and say, look, you are now being enriched on the wages of young renters. And those young renters are your own kids and your own grandkids. Yeah, yeah. So if you want those kids to have the type of life and opportunity that you have had, you've got to actually take some stick now. And that stick comes in the guise of a wealth tax. Now, what the wealth tax on land would be interesting. A government could say, look, we will increase tax on your land wealth, right? But 
At the same time, we will decrease your income tax. So what you're basically saying is we're trying to shift the economy away from land and excess speculation, hoarding land, yeah. and back to labour. So I think it just it just demands somebody to explain. This is part explain. of the, the big pendulum swing. It's part of the big pendulum. I'm just going to give you a, a statistic from Ireland, right? I remember I don't know, a couple of years ago, I did a, a documentary called Ireland's Great Wealth Divide, and I was mm, looking at... Remember uh, that. Right? Very good. Now, I just give, these are the most recent figures in Ireland, the difference between families with houses and families without houses. So the difference between the wealth of families who rent, the wealth of families who own their own houses, right? This is from Ireland, right? But the same goes all over the world. Yeah, yeah. Most recent figures, so it's 2020, showed that net wealth of the median family, so they're right in the middle, that's the, that's the family of whom 50% of the population are richer, 50% are poorer. So you're right in the middle. Mm-hmm. The net wealth of that family is 304,000 euros, right? Okay. The median wealth, they're the people who own their own house. The median wealth, think about this, of families that rent and don't own their own house is 5,300 euros. Wow. So, wow, yeah. So Jesus. the median family who owns, 300 odd thousand. Mm. The median family who rents, 5,000, right? And it, of course, this feeds into wealth distribution and wealth inequality. So for example, the wealthiest 10% of our families, right, in Ireland, have wealth of 788,000 euros. Most of that in houses, right? And in their house. Yeah. The bottom 10% of Irish families, imagine, what do you think they have wealth-wise, the bottom 10%? No idea. So the top has nearly 800 grand. The bottom has 600 euros. 600? 600, not 6,000, not 60,000, 600. And of course, all of... unbelievable wealth gap. It's unbelievable, right? Yeah. And it's all to do with houses. And if you do that all over the world, you do it in America, you do it in Britain, you do it in Canada, you do it in every single English-speaking country mm. who have a bigger heritage and tradition of owning houses, I'd say you'll find exactly the same type of figures. So that type, that's almost like Marie Antoinette type wealth. That's kind of mm. Louis XIV sort of carry on, right? Okay. And it's all because of housing. And therefore, the people who can't get on the housing ladder are condemned to a form of poverty. Yeah. And all because wealth poverty. begets wealth because, you know, it can be used as collateral. That's it can, exactly, it's exactly the case. And all that kind of it, stuff. It, it also makes you much more secure. So, yeah. I mean, if you think about, about things like anxiety, mental health, all those issues, right? Yeah. A huge amount of that comes from security and insecurity. And a huge amount of people's security in life and dignity in life is having a place that is their own. Yeah. So... The people who are not on the housing ladder, as this thing keeps accelerating, constantly have anxiety about not being on the housing ladder. Yeah. So this is a constant, mm. constant worry. The people who are, as you said, can use collateral in their houses to leverage other things, to buy other things, to invest in other sort of all, yeah. all sorts of things, safe in the knowledge that the nest egg is growing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this drives a massive, massive gap terms of wealth. I'll just give you two. Who is it, right? Again, this is Irish figures, but I'd say it's the same for the rest of the world, right? In 2016, most renters were obviously under 35. But in the late 1990s, a typical renter was 26, mm-hmm. right? Now that has risen to 34, right? Okay. So what you're finding is people who are renting are older yeah. and young people can't even afford rent, so they're staying at home, yeah. okay? 
But just to give you a statistic, right? The number of people between 25 and 34-year-olds living independently and owning their own homes, i.e. with a mortgage, right, has fallen from 60% in 2004 to 27%, this is in Ireland, in 2019. So that wealth gap I'm talking about is amplifying all the time. And what we're doing, not just in Ireland, in the States, in all countries, is we're condemning a young generation to what looks to me not like abject poverty, but relative poverty. And the problem with relative poverty is it becomes absolute eventually. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now.